trust it and like meet it a little bit halfway and you keep your brain awake and let your imagination flow with it is when it starts to get really exciting. Oh, I love that. There's our intro. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program we're joined by Bradford Cover. Bradford Cover is a New York-based actor and director, a former member of the board of directors of the Pearl Theatre Company, and the artistic director of the newly formed Resident Acting Company. Bradford's notable acting credits include A Thousand Clowns on Broadway and multiple appearances at the Pearl Theatre Company and other off-Broadway and regional venues, including the Drama Department, the Mint, Human Race, Two River Theatre, New Jersey Shakespeare Festival, Cleveland Playhouse, Vermont Stage Company, McCarter Theatre, Philadelphia Theatre Company, Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival, and Texas Shakespeare Festival, one that's near and dear to my heart. Welcome, Bradford. Thank you. God, when you hear it all said in one chunk, it's just really, wow. It sounds like uh, a career, I right? I need to take a break already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my life was just uttered in under 10 seconds. <laughs> Well, let's dive in because um, we were saddened to learn of the Pearl Theater's sudden closure in June of 2017. And many of our guests, including Grant Goodman and Jason O'Connell and many others, are Pearl Theater alumni. So um, how important was the Pearl Theater to classical theater audiences in New York? And what impact did its closure have on the theater community? It was an important place for those of us that were in the company, for sure, for so many years. And we were so... Uh, shocked and um, and well, well, we had we had many emotions when the Pearl went out of business, which is about two years ago now. For for a long time, the Pearl did five shows a year. People have resident companies, but the Pearl was unique because it had a resident company that was actually in the place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Not just for name quality. And when we were really rolling. When I was younger and started with the Pearl, uh, it was it was incredible. I mean, we were we were in everything, and we had small parts and big parts, and and uh, it was a it was a true like repertory. But the original impetus for the Pearl's creation, when Shep and Joanne uh, built it in the eighties, um, was that uh, you know there was a lot of not great classical theater going on back then. And they thought, what if we went back to basics and just tried to really attack these plays head on and take them at face value and do them well and do the language well and um, make them clear and make them thrilling and exciting. But also, let's not let's not mess around with them too much was kind of the idea. You could be sure to go and see a Greek tragedy, um, a restoration comedy, a Shakespeare, a Chekhov maybe an absurdist, all in one year, and they would all be good. And, and I think that, and to, to me, when I hear about the Pearl and other repertory companies I've been involved with, the loss is the, for the young actor, because the young actor yeah. doesn't get to sit beside older, more experienced actors and yeah. watch them work. That's a huge part of it. I was, I was just out of graduate school, and Pearl asked me to join the company after doing a couple of plays with them, and I, I, I did that. I, you, know, you sit next to the older guys in the dressing room, and you, and you uh, hear, I love listening to their stories, um, and then watching them, how they, watch how they do things. Yeah. Yeah, watch how they like solve problems and how they um, attack scenes and how, what, their, what their ways are. You, you learn so much. 
and you learn from just getting up in front of audiences a lot. You know, eight shows a week, five shows a year. You just learn a tremendous amount by being up in front of live audiences, live paying audiences, doing all sorts of different kinds of roles. It's impossible to learn that anywhere else. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the best training. Well, it- you know, a theater company, I think quite naturally, has a certain life cycle, and often it tracks um, along with the the growth and the, the, the development of, of the person or persons who were the inspiration and the energy at its inception. As a member of a company, you don't often get a chance to, to really have that perspective on what's really going on and where it is in its life cycle and what it takes to keep the company going behind the scenes, but you've had a, you've had a, a chance to to uh, have uh, many perspectives on, on that company. Yeah, it's really true. I, uh, again, totally unexpected. But yeah, I did have a chance to get behind the scenes and uh, play different roles. And so uh, I was on the board for three years uh, representing the acting company. Um, the, our founders, we should say, uh, were Shep Sobel and Joanne Camp, who... Uh, are uh, amazing theater people and uh it was really their baby you know um and then when shep and joanne decided they'd had enough (laughs) and it was time to time to move on to the next phase of their lives so then um you know there was a moment when it was like what are we gonna what's gonna happen now and uh so they hired jim sullivan to be the artistic director and that was a great choice and we also moved to city center in that same transition so, after having been in the East Village uh, at uh, Theater 80 for a long time, suddenly we were in Midtown while we were hunting around for a more permanent space. And that was a really interesting time at the, at the Pearl. Um, it was the first years without the founders. Mm. So that initial impetus that you referenced was in, in all of us and in, the, and in our energy and our... And our and our intellect and our approach, but it, but but Shep and Joanne had 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 enough, and they were, it was time for them to, to move on to the next phase of their lives. Uh, we did some really good work in that space. It was it's a great little theater, um, and I have to say I kind of I kind of miss it uh, mm-hmm. for that reason. It's great for the kind of work that we do. Well, you're you're using the the present tense now. You say the kind of work that we do, and we're talking about the Pearl Theater, uh, which shuttered a couple of years ago. But now. Uh, the resident acting companies come into existence. In part, uh, your website says to to carry on the mission of the Pearl Theater and its legacy. And uh, how? What's the connection there? And how do you intend to carry on the the mission and legacy? Yeah, I still have problems. Like every now and then, I'll say like, "Welcome to the Pearl," when I'm making an announcement. After one of our <laughs> like, no, no, it's not the Pearl. Sorry. We're called the Resident Acting Company. Anyway, um, uh, I think I stopped doing that finally. Um, yeah. So what? So in so years go by in the storytelling. We were at City Center. The Pearl finds a space on Forty Second Street, which you guys know about, and we were there for a number of years, um, and that was also a great space. And then the Pearl uh, went out of business. And so when that happened, the actors we all got together and just started talking, and and you know we were. Um, having various emotional reactions to the shutting down of the theater. And uh, uh, we, we, we decided that we wanted to band together and, um, and start our own enterprise based on the mission of the Pearl, to continue 
the kind of work we were doing. And we're still in the process of doing that, and it's very exciting. And I think as, as, a, as part of that, you've done um, a series of readings recently. We've done 10 or so uh, script-in-hand performances, we call them, uh, stage readings at the Players Club. And we started it's a year ago. My goodness. And uh, mm. uh, we've done a whole bunch of them, and they're going really well. Um, you, uh, I, I believe you recently did a reading of Shakespeare's sonnets. Is that correct? Yeah, we did. Um, we, uh, uh, well, so, <laughs> um, hearkening back to, to theater two, that space that I was talking about with the, in the round, uh, my original idea for the readings was to do it as in the, to find a space where we could actually do an intimate evening of theater in the round. And I was looking around, and I was trying to find a space that we could afford. We didn't really have any any money yet, and um, uh, it was it was tough. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in Manhattan, and I was like, "Oh, right, we don't have any money." Oh, okay. So hey, how are we going to do this? Um, living room. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and then um, uh, one of our one of our past uh, uh, supporters and and board members from the Pearl gave us a little bit of money to get started, which was amazing. And so we took that, and I could shop around in a more serious way. And I ended up um, landing at the Players Club because I've, I've been a member there for a while. I grew up going there with my dad, who was a, who was a member um, back in the old days, in the 50s and 60s. And then when I came along, he took me there for lunch when I was a kid. And I just have a fondness for the place. And I uh, uh, was asking them about the, how we could possibly use it and it, it worked out it made sense um and so we've been we've been there for for 10 or so uh events and um it's worked out really well um i don't know if you know the club at all or you've been there before i think i've been there once but it, it was a very long time ago oh yeah yeah it was edwin booth's house right yes. yeah um, Edwin Booth and Mark Twain and a bunch of other actors and literary types started the club when Edwin lived in the house. And um, you may know Edwin uh, had an interesting life. His, yeah. his, his brother had that unfortunate uh, <laughs> incident with the president. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but Edwin was a, a very successful actor and he, he made a lot of money touring Shakespeare um, around America. And, he he, he incited and, some riots, if I'm not mistaken, as well. I believe he did. Did he? Did he incite yeah, riots? Yeah, I think down oh, by the Astor Place riots, right? Was that about Edwin? Well, it wasn't about Edwin. It was about Edwin versus a British actor, and I can't remember the name of the British actor. Like, it was face-to-face -face oh, right. Shakespeare, and their fans got into it. <laughs> right. It's like yeah. watching the soccer hooligans, you know? Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. That's I remember that. Yeah. I um, thought about inciting some Astor Place riots because we used to, the Pearl used to be close to Astor Place. And I was like, <laughs> we should reenact the Astor Place riots. <laughs> like, you know, try to get the New York Times to come down here or something. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the club is a wonderful old place and it's filled with history and, and um, there's a big dining room where we with a stage and that's where we've been doing these events and when we first got in there i thought oh god we can't do it in the round i mean it's very hard to figure out with the lighting and the chairs and everything and i just couldn't figure it out anyway we finally figured out how to do it <laughs> like, 
few weeks ago when we did the sonnets. So we were able to set up the room in almost completely in the round, and the acting space was in the, was in the middle, which is really what I wanted um, for us the whole time. Because when you do that, it really it really creates a feeling like we're all sort of sharing the space together, mm-hmm. and the audience can see each other across the way, and they can see the actors in the middle, and the actors can can you know depending on the style of what you're doing, you can interact with the audience or not. Uh, we had a little bit of audience interaction with the sonnets, not too much, because mm-hmm. that can get annoying. But we <laughs> we we did a little bit of that, and um, uh, it's just wonderful for for ensemble playing, you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you said that you discovered some things doing the sonnets, and you've been doing Shakespeare for quite 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 a few years uh, in a yeah. lot of roles. What was it? What was the what were the discoveries that you had? Well, I. Uh, the sonnets are really wild. <laughs> they're wild. They're in. They're in, they're crazy. They're they're um, they're about those moments in your life when you're when you're in crisis, when you're freaking out about either someone's just broken your heart or someone's just left you or some you can't you can't get your lover's attention or you've been betrayed. You can you really feel the that someone's brain is on fire when you really dive into those things. It's a little bit out of control. It's teetering on the edge. Yeah, his work is a little bit like from a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) Like someone who's a little bit mad and, and, and trying to sort out things. I'd have loved to have seen this reading because I don't really feel that way about the sonnets. And that admittedly, it's because I'm not super familiar with them. But I kind of think of them as, you know, they're pleasant. And then you wait for yeah. the rhyming couplet at the end. And, yeah. oh, that was a cute little twist there. Yeah. And, then, yeah. <laughs> and then it's forgotten, you know. Yeah. I, and I had that same thought, you know. But when I went back to them and really dove into them, some of the, a lot of the thoughts that are being expressed are crazy and, and <laughs> wild and like out of control and coming from the place of someone who is freaking out, you know, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, you, it, it, it you, is. You feel that emotional content like bang. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it hits you if you can relate to, to that yeah. heightened, heightened emotion. Otherwise, you're sitting there as an audience m- member thinking, oh, that was a little extreme. That guy's being well, a little dramatic. Right. Uh-huh. We need to tone it down a little bit. Wow, well, push the decaf. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And, one, and the first step to getting there, to get the audience to come along with you, I think, is really getting into the clarity of what you're saying. And so, like, we took days just literally sitting around trying to figure out what what the hell we were saying yeah and i think for me whenever i've worked on a sonnet that becomes that becomes the issue is that sonnets weren't written for dramatic purposes um whereas the plays were the thing that i don't understand about the sonnets is what's the end game there right because yeah. i mean if you yeah. if you're writing a play you know what you know what that's for right that's going in front of an audience and and they're supposed to love it and or right. you know be totally transformed or or both yeah. right? when you've written a yeah. sonnet is is it a private thing that you are writing for someone which is really for their eyes only is it something that's going to go in a cute collection of books that you'll publish and hopefully you know turn a profit on or is it just some uh, is it a vanity yeah. project or, or or you know just a hobby i don't understand what they're for yeah. 
Well, um, according to some of my research, sonnets were a hobby in those days, for sure. We know that they were passed around amongst, you know, people who wrote sonnets. They would they would send them to each other and trade them back and forth, like, or showing off your skill as a poet or whatever to your friend. Like that, that was like a thing. It says, I did a little little looking, and it says, in 1609, Thomas Thorpe published Shakespeare's sonnets, no doubt without the author's permission. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there we go. There so, we so he never there saw he never saw a dime. All right. There it is. Was and, he still alive? He was. Yeah. Yeah. Still, yeah. He's still alive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe winding yeah. down a little bit, but. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Still, still in the game in 1609. Right. You just also did a reading of Brian Dykstra's Polishing Shakespeare, which was a very clear and demonstrative answer to the Play On project. Oh, there's the good segue that we were looking for, Jim. Well played. There yes. we go. What did you, you, and you said earlier that it was a lively discussion after the reading. Um, what, were, what was the takeaway? Well, um, the takeaway is that, first of all, Brian Dykstra is an amazing uh, playwright and uh, a force of nature, really. I mean, his mm-hmm. work is, I've known it for a long time and I've always enjoyed it and this this play really felt like um, you know a direct response to something that was that that uh, Brian describes as disbelief uh, <laughs> when he heard that someone was going to spend a great deal of money and effort to try to what they call translate Shakespeare's plays and Brian wrote this play in response to that and it really feels that way when you when you when you when you hear it or when you see it it's just it's just a it's an absolute emotional response to something that 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 he just can't believe is happening mm-hmm. um so i know you talked to brian so i don't know how much of, and we've also uh, talked to dave hits oh you did oh good yes. yeah um and you know as as Brian and Dave, I'm sure, said we've had we've had great conversations with Dave, uh, uh, the founder of, of the translation project, and really interesting chats with him. And uh, we all uh, got along really well, <laughs> but we were in, you know, we did not agree on, on a lot of things. Um, uh, but we were we 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 were so gl- we're so glad that Dave like met us and wanted to engage with us and wanted to like come see Brian's play and wanted to participate in the talk back afterwards and it just made it for a really lively evening where we could hear like different people's perspectives and we could hear what was driving him and what the what what he cared about you know it was really yeah. great yeah he he does he's a, you know he, he's he articulates his desires really clearly mm-hmm. and and they make sense. Um, yeah. Um, what in general, though, with the the people who stayed for the talkback, what was the feeling about the Play On project overall? We, I think we, you know, I mean, we have we had a, a an interesting audience that night um, with different points of view in it. But I could feel the general consensus was that most people there were like. This is an abomination, you know. Why, why? Why would you? Why would you dare translate these plays? I love that this is, seems to be the biggest thing that's going on in the world of Shakespeare right now. It's it's kind of, it's fun and it's so silly. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're yeah. talking about camps of people that love Shakespeare, just maybe in a different way, or expressing it differently, mm-hmm. or exploring mm-hmm. it differently. We're not even talking about Shakespeare versus Marlowe, or Shakespeare versus Shaw, or Shakespeare versus right. NHL hockey, uh, you know, or anything <laughs> yeah. else you could be doing with your time. <laughs> but yet, passions run deep. And you know what? I'll say something about that. Um, Because I I was thinking about that a lot in the last few weeks about how high the emotions can go in this in this stuff, and and I was wondering why, you know, and I I really couldn't put my finger on it, and and then I had a a a moment myself. I was I I had asked for a a copy of one of the translations, and Dave was nice enough to send it to me, Um, and I um, uh, you know swore not to share it uh, because it's not published yet. but I just wanted to see one. And um, I did a little personal comparison with the original. And and I, it's, I, got very, I was very surprised, but I got very upset. Hmm. I mean, I was like by myself looking at my computer and I started getting like angry <laughs> comparing them. And I was like, what is going on? Like, seriously, I'm getting like it. And, and, and I started to feel as I was looking at the, the back and forth, it started to feel like it was, uh, it got like personal. It started to feel like, oh, this is like an assault on all the work that I've done. And this is happening in my mind while I'm looking at oh, it. Wow. I'm like, what? Really? Am I feeling this way? And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm like, this is really feels like an assault on all of the time and effort that I've spent working on Shakespeare. Wow. And so <laughs> I sort of like, you know, cooled off and I calmed down and I realized that's not what, you know, is really going on. But it does feel that way sometimes um, to people who care about it a lot. Uh, and I, just, like, I suddenly was like, wow, I sort of see why people get so crazy about this. What was the play? Uh, it was The Tempest. Uh, so um, the other thing that we wanted to talk to you about is that you, you are known for playing uh, comedic characters in Shakespeare. Um, oh, you brought in one of Baroon's famous monologues from Love's Labor's Lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Garrett, go ahead with your question. Well, wait a minute. I have to stop right here because you said Baroon. And I think we need to get a consensus about how we're going to pronounce <laughs> this guy's name. Because okay. I've seen it spelled B-E-R-O-W-N-E and B-I-R-O-N. And do we have any agreement here? How do you say his name? I've always well, called him Baroon. Yes, I have too. Baroon. Because it rhymes. Ah. Oh, there you go. There's like... a there's a rhyme somewhere in the play, and I can't remember where it is, but it actually does rhyme at some point with another word. You got to tell uh, me what word that is, because maybe I we're can. mispronouncing that word. Well, <laughs> that might be true. I've also seen it done as Baron, which is bizarre. In this little printout I have from MIT, it looks like Biron. It's been a long time since I've looked at this play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jim and I were just talking about this. It's been a long time for everybody because this is one of the ones that you read maybe in school. I mean, this speech in particular, the one that we're, we're about to dig into, is 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 one of those that's kind of dog-eared from having been abused so many times in intro right. to Shakespeare classes. And right, um, frankly, <laughs> it's one that I would be terrified to bring in for an audition because every male Shakespearean actor in need of a comic monologue for an audition piece has it in his repertoire. So yeah. one of the things that we'd like to talk about, of course, is how do you make this material interesting to an audience who's heard right. it so many times? But just to get bring our uh, listeners up to, up to speed, we're, we're going to be talking about Act 3, Scene 1, 
And it's the speech that begins, and I forsooth in love. I'm, I'm going to give you my, my Skype version. Oh, Lord, here we go. <clears throat> okay. And I forsooth in love? I, that have been love's whip, a very beetle to a humorous sigh, a critic, nay, a night-watch constable, a domineering pedant o'er the boy, than whom no mortal so magnificent. This wimpled, whining, purblind, wayward boy, this senior-junior giant dwarf, Dan Cupid, regent of love rhymes, lord of folded arms, the anointed sovereign of sighs and groans, liege of all loiterers and malcontents, dread prince of plackets, king of codpieces, sole imperator and great general of trotting parators. Oh, my little heart, am I to be a corporal of his field and wear his colors like a tumbler's hoop? What? I love, I sue, I, I seek a wife. A woman that is like a German clock, still a repairing, ever out of frame, and never going aright, being watch. But being watched, that it may still go right. Nay, to be perjured, which is worst of all, and among three to love the worst of all, a whitely wanton with a velvet brow, with two pitch balls stuck in her face for eyes. I am by heaven one that will do the deed, though Argus be her eunuch and her guard. <laughs> and I to sigh for her? To watch for her? To pray for her? Go to! It is a plague that Cupid will impose for my neglect of his almighty dreadful little might. Well, I will love, write, sigh, pray, sue, groan. Some men must love my lady and some Joan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank okay. you. <laughs> there are some little choices going on there. Uh, good Lord. For you right. students out there, don't do it like that. Never, ever do it like that. That was the wrong way. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, yeah. No, I think it was, it, was, it was well done. Thank you, Bradford. Yeah, th there's some language in here, obviously, that's, uh, you know, so turns of phrase, which might not be a, a, a current Right. And then take some unpacking. So maybe you can help us out with this. We're looking at line number two of the speech. And those of those of you who are following along the website, this is line number two. And it's a very beetle to a humorous sigh. What on earth does that mean? What on earth does it mean? You know what, guys? I didn't have time to look up all the words. <laughs> I okay. did not do that this time. They were, they were, they were going to not date chicks for a while, right? right? Good plan. Yeah, great plan. Right. Um, and then all these chicks show up, of course. Um, so I first who can love, I that have been love's whip, right? So I've been the whip to love. I've whipped it away. I have been its, I have whipped it like it was my, whatever, my, my, my bad servant, right? Um, and I've been a very beetle to a humorous eye. So a humorous eye being... Being in love. I, I, right. I've been a Humorous, maybe not necessarily in the sense of funny there, but in the sense of the, the humors. The passions right. that run through the body, right? right. I don't mm -hmm. know what a beetle is. I I know that from beetle is 
Beadle is a uh, minister of the church. Okay, so uh, yeah, I know I know it from uh, yes. the, the musical, the Sondheim musical, of course, right? There's a character Beadle from the Demon Barber of Sweeney Todd, uh, right? Yes, that's right. That's the yeah, one connection the I have. Beatle. <laughs> that, right, that's okay. right. So what I love about Shakespeare is that when I think of, you know, I've been a very Beatle to a humorous side. In my imagination, it makes me think, oh, I've been like like an annoying insect oh. to a humorous sigh. I think if you happen to catch that in your ear while you're watching a Shakespeare play, and it doesn't mean the church version, but it means pest, I think you're fine. So what I'm hearing is that you so do the research, like, you get to know it, and then just make your own decision. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You have to connect to something. And, it, <laughs> and, it, and it's better if it comes from you rather than from, you know some professor at a college who, you know, and because the audience doesn't know. If it works for you, that's what matters. And if you can transmit that feeling, it's like when you look at a piece of art and you have a, you have a reaction to it, intellectual or emotional, you, it's there, it's a thing. And you you can't really describe it, but you it, but it happened. I, I'm fascinated trying to, t- trying to get into the psychology at, at work here because it seems like you're holding two contradicting notions in your mind at one time. So there's this casual approach to um, the text in, in the yeah. work that you've shared with us, but yet there's this reverence for the text when, when you come down on the question of uh, the Play On project. So uh, yeah. how, do you, how do you reconcile those? That's a great question. I think it's the... Um, I think it's the... It's, it's, it's the it's the same duality that exists in Shakespeare in that it, it, it is a, in some ways a formal language with a meter and, and, and poetic structure to it, but it is also a huge experiment, right? Shakespeare is experimenting. He's trying things. He's, he's, uh, I once heard a teacher um, say that it's interesting to think about Shakespeare as not an old language, but a young, a young language, a language that is, that is that is breaking out of its traditional forms and is trying trying new things and, and experimenting with with ways to express thoughts that all human beings have that have that have never really been expressed before in literature or on stage, and so so it's both those things, you know, and that and that's and then I think you have to embrace that that tension. Um, uh, and, and, and not feel like, um, there's this, like, you know, instructor, this formal instructor who's, who's standing over you like a beetle, right? Right. <laughs> like, like, like if you're going to, oh my God, you might do it wrong. But sometimes I think, you know, just, just letting the language inspire you allows an actor to use their imagination which then allows an audience member to receive that. And I just think that's like the most important thing, ultimately. Wow. Well, I th- feel like that's a really lovely place to cap it. What do you think, Jim? Uh, I think that that is, that is. Um, and uh. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> okay. All right, Bradford. Bradford, thank you so much for, for joining us today on the program and best of luck to you and everyone involved with the resident acting company. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Bradford. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.
Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.